and really Isaiah chapter 35 brings us to the end kind of another major section in the book of Isaiah. If you remember the last number of chapters we've been looking about have referenced a lot different judgments from the Lord uh, against different nations particularly. And chapter 34 we saw last time really was very evidently describing in picturesque ways a broader judgment, a global judgment, which was clearly picturing in a lot of ways the uh, last day's judgment during the time of the Great Tribulation, when there will be obviously the most severe form of judgment that God has poured out upon humanity, which will bring great cataclysmic events and destruction upon the earth. We've been looking at a lot of these things in our study in the book of Revelation on Sunday morning, but chapter 34 was very clearly describing uh, these severe judgments and cataclysmic destructive events that are going to happen on the earth itself, leaving the surface of the earth and humanity quite devastated as the result of those judgments. For we were told in chapter 34 that that is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of the recompense for the cause of Zion. So God is dealing with Christ rejecting humanity. He also, as we saw in chapter 34, verse 8, was specifically bringing recompense for the way that humanity through history had also treated the nation of Israel, his chosen people, the Jews. Uh, and one day, God himself will take recompense because of the wrong treatment against the Jewish people, and that will be one of the things God will actually be doing during the time of the seven-year period of tribulation when God's uniquely working among Israel once again after he's removed you and I, the church, as well as during that time he will be, in a sense, bringing judgment against those who rejected Christ and the offer of salvation. Now, the culmination, of course, of those severe judgments that are coming in the time of that seven-year period of the Great Tribulation, the culmination of that at the end of that will be when the Lord Jesus Christ then returns in glory. We often refer to this as the second coming of Christ. And again, two different things referred to there when we talk about the rapture of the church, the harpazo, that is the catching away of the saints. That's described 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul is describing where the Lord appears in the air. He doesn't come down and touch upon the earth, but he appears in the air. And it says that we Christians, the church, are caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and that we're then brought into heaven, whereby we shall ever be with the Lord and are spared this time of the judgment of God, of course, because we've already trusted in the wrath of God that was borne by Jesus sufficiently on our behalf. So God's not going to judge us again a second time when he's already judged Christ for the sin of the world, and we have embraced that for ourselves. But there is a just punishment and sentence that must come upon those who rejected that offer and who chose to stand on their own grounds and their own righteousness before God. So as we're tucked away in heaven for that seven-year period, the tribulation is happening upon the earth, at the culmination of that, we then, the Bible describes, Revelation chapter 19 and other places as well, chapter 19 of Revelation gives probably the more lengthy description, we will then return with the Lord in our glorified bodies as Christ comes back as a glorified warrior king riding on a white horse, coming back in all of his glory, the second time as a strong, powerful warrior king, not a humble, suffering servant, that was his first coming, but in his second coming, he comes back, touches down upon the earth. The Bible says upon the Mount of Olives, it cleaves in two, and he rides up through and sets up his throne there in Jerusalem and quickly overthrows all the rebellion of humanity and establishes then his rulership, his rightful rulership that he claimed to when he conquered the sin and death of this world uh, and really redeemed back the earth to himself and he will establish his throne to reign and bring to pass then what is called the time of the kingdom age, where for a thousand years, the Bible describes, Jesus will reign from Jerusalem on this earth. We often refer to that time as the millennium, a reference to a thousand or a thousand years when we will together with Jesus in our glorified bodies be assisting him in his rulership, his righteous reign upon the earth. Now, that's described, again, Revelation chapter 20 describes the beginning and the onset of that. Let me just for sake of context as a, a runway to chapter 35 this evening, 
read to you some of what's described about that coming kingdom age when it's established. Revelation 20 says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Now that tells you something right there as that's going to be done at the beginning of the kingdom age. One of the things Satan clearly is doing right now on the earth, it says there that he should deceive the nations no more. That's what he's doing right now. He's deceiving the nations. He's the great deceiver. And he does that in many different ways in unseen and unnoticed capacities through things like media and ideologies of people and false religions and spiritual deception. And through many different channels, the devil is working to deceive not only humanity and people individually to try and keep them out of heaven and to draw them into the lake of fire and to destroy them eternally, but even more on a broader level, he is seeking to deceive the nation. So sometimes when you watch what goes on, on national levels, in global things, and you're thinking, well, what are people thinking? Well, right, they're, they're deceived. They're being blinded, and there is a satanic undercurrent and an influence behind even the deception of the nations. And the Bible says that one of the things that will happen in this time of the reign of Christ is the devil will be bound by an, another angel cast into the bottomless pit and sealed there and unable to have any access to what's going on on the earth during the time of the kingdom age when Christ is reigning for those thousand years. Then it says, but after these things, he must be released for a little while. And we'll talk about that when we get to our study in Revelation so we don't get bogged down here. Uh, but again, the idea there is he must give a final opportunity to humanity to see, do they truly want to follow Christ? Or are they just following Christ because of his strong, powerful reign? And if the devil wasn't released one more time, there would be no way for God to judicially prove out, are these people during the kingdom age who've been born following me, or are they just following me because they don't have an option? <laughs> because of the strong, righteous reign of Christ when he rules with a rod of iron and righteousness, the devil will go forth and sort of prove that out one last time before God brings an end to the kingdom age. And he says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness of Jesus and the word of God. These would be the tribulation saints who will also be there with us, who were martyred, who confessed Christ and were faithful and lost their lives, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, that's the Antichrist, and had not received the mark, on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived, that is, Christ, you and I as saints who came back with him, as well as those who were tribulation saints, who were resurrected and given their bodies, we shall live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. So the Bible describes this coming kingdom age, the millennium, and chapter 35, Isaiah clearly, as we look at it here, is clearly, clearly seeing, I believe, in the spirit, some evidences of some of the atmosphere and aspects of this time, of this coming kingdom age. And so it's kind of a refreshing thing to see after a lot of judgment and judgment and judgment and judgment that when Jesus returns, there starts to be things being restored and renewed and now as Christ's presence has come back to the earth, he's overthrown his enemies. He has set up his throne upon the earth. And when Jesus returns and sets up his throne, some really wonderful things will begin to happen as Christ rules and reigns for those thousand years. And we get a glimmer of some of that here in chapter 35. So this is what we're getting a chance to look at here in these verses. The first thing Isaiah tells us here is he says, the wilderness... And the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. 
The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon, and they shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. So one of the things Isaiah sees that will take place is that creation itself, physical creation, the environment, uh, the surface of the globe, not only just there in Israel, but in other locations as well, that has been devastated because of all the judgments and the cataclysmic events during the time of the tribulation, areas that have become barren wastelands, that have been desert-like, that have produced no fruit, nothing good, if you would. Creation and environment will all be responding to the coming of Jesus and something very wonderful and restorative will happen where even physical creation itself and nature will be changing and blossoming into its most fruitful and abundant and beautiful condition in response to the presence of Christ. Now, why in response to the presence of Christ? Because who's Christ? He's the creator. He's God. The Bible tells us that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit throughout the Word of God were all involved in creation. Hebrews 1 tells us specifically that Jesus himself was involved in the creative process. That's why I understand when we read the Gospels and we see Jesus speak to things like the wind and the waves and they obey him and the disciples are like mesmerized and, whoa, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Well, he was the creator and that's why creation obeyed him. (laughs) And so when Jesus comes back to his original creation and sets foot upon the earth and now begins to literally rule and reign with rightful claim over his creation, though it has been devastated by multiple things. One, from the Garden of Eden, when the fall of humanity happened, Genesis chapter 3 tells us that part of the curse is that creation itself is now under the curse. And so physical creation, as beautiful and marvelous as it still is, and if you've traveled to some different places or you've looked at images from other locations, there are some really, really beautiful, incredible areas and locations on this planet globally of God's marvelous creation and realize that's the cursed version. This is the ruined version. (laughs) This is the ruined version as a result of the curse And then on top of that, when these cataclysmic judgments happen, things will be even worse, as we saw in chapter 34, some description of those type of things. And that's why here he's now describing that the wilderness and the wasteland, the ideas of these areas that have been barren, like deserts, he says, and wastelands, they've just been devastated, that they will be glad, why, and start to rejoice because their creator is back. And they know that he's going to begin a restorative act to begin to rejuvenate creation. It's almost like a a recreation, if you would, uh, that the Lord is going to begin once again bringing marvelous restoration and healing even to physical creation where we read here that creation itself responding to Jesus will begin to blossom as the rose that is beginning to bud forth and in just beauty that's never even been seen before. It will make what exists now look like just worthless because the beauty of the master creator himself will be here and his powers will be in operation. It says, verse two, it shall blossom abundantly. Everything will become fertile and begin to flourish and rejoice even with joy and singing. Notice creation itself will be having this celebratory experience as the creator is back now ruling over it in a rightful way and beginning to restore it and beginning to allow it to respond to his power. It says, verse 2, the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it and as well as the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. Now, again, these were territories, understand, in Israel and that region, particularly Israel and then north of it in the area of Lebanon, that were known to be incredibly beautiful territories, Uh, He describes here the the glory of Lebanon shall be given to creation at that time. Remember, Lebanon was that location where that was known for all the glorious cedars. Remember, they sent those cedars to David and to Solomon, these massive, 
magnificent trees, the cedars and the cypress trees, and, and Lebanon was known for that. And you know, despite the fact that Lebanon has its fair share of problems, there are some really beautiful areas still in the territory of Lebanon, despite some of the really bad conditions in the country. And in that day, it was a, a marked place known for glory and for beauty among the people, as well as these other low cases. Carmel, or what we would often refer to as Mount Carmel. Carmel means the vineyard of God, and Mount Carmel overlooks Israel's Mediterranean coastline. It's a very beautiful territory, as well as uh, the area of Sharon, uh, also the plains of Sharon or the plains of Sharon. Understand, even in that day, particularly, this was very meaningful because for the ancient world, the plains of, of Sharon had value because they were a key section of what was often referred to as the Via Mare, which was the international highway, a trade route that connected a lot of the other continents that was passed through by going through Israel. It linked Egypt and Africa with Mesopotamia and Eurasia. So again, God very strategically understand and that that location is right within Israel and that became this incredible trade route where people from various continents, again, from Egypt and Africa, Mesopotamia and Eurasia, would all travel on this Via Mare, on this highway through Israel. You understand, again, if for no other reason, one of the reasons among many that God chose sovereignly the nation of Israel and the Jewish people to be his chosen people because they would then be a tremendous light to the nations because God knew that the nations would pass through and bisect that area all the time doing trade and that God's chosen people being there could represent as they were supposed to be, though they failed to a great degree, they could be light unto the world to represent the one true God. They had a copy of the word of God. They knew the one true and living God and God had put them there for that reason. So again, these were areas just known for great beauty and that's why he describes here that the glory and the excellence of these beautiful locations, it's a very picturesque idea, will be given uh, to creation at that time. They were glorious pieces of land with special beauty and value, and people enjoyed being in those locations. And again, it's just poetically describing how the glory and the excellence of creation at that time is going to be overwhelming as God rejuvenates the planet because he's going to liberate it from its cursed condition. Again, what's very interesting is Romans chapter 8, you might want to jot in your notes or in your Bible here, Romans 8 verse 19 to 22 describes this reality, how creation itself, physical creation, just like human beings, creatures, that we groan and long within as the Spirit of God is within us for the redemption of our bodies. And so we groan eagerly waiting to be released from these physical tents that are failing and falling apart, that we might receive our new building from God, our new eternal glorified body with no more sickness and suffering. But the Bible tells us that even physical creation is groaning, longing to be liberated from the curse that it's under. It tells us this in Romans 8, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, to emptiness, futileness, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption, the curse, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God for we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So even physical creation, I don't know if you go outside and you listen on a quiet morning, maybe you can hear it groaning, longing, waiting to the day, because creation itself knows that this hour is coming, that when the children of God are revealed by the Son of God coming back and setting up his kingdom, creation itself understands that in that day, the curse will be lifted. And in a sense, the conditions of the original Eden experience from the garden will be restored back in the, the beauty and the glory of all those things. It says there at the end of verse 2, they shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Now, very interesting. They shall see. We're not sure there. It is they shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Is that referring to creation? in a personified sense, like up in the earlier part of the verse where he talks about 
that the desert is going to rejoice and blossom. He talks about how uh, even it's going to, verse 2, with joy and singing. We picture, you know, creation, you know, singing and rejoicing there, again, in this personified way. Is he referring to creation itself that one day is going to get to see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of God as he restores back all this beauty back to it once again, to its original condition? Uh, That possibly could be the case. You know, it is interesting that from time to time the Bible speaks of creation uh, in this personified way. Remember Jesus himself on the occasion when they were uh, telling the the people to stop praising Jesus. And remember Jesus said, listen... (laughs) If they stop praising me, even the rocks are going to cry out and start praising the Lord, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed. Now, there's a part of me that just wishes how cool that would have been if even just for a bar or two or just one course, he just, he was just okay, just be quiet. Let's show them. I mean, it would have been the first original rock concert. would have been very impressive, and it would have been just a really an incredible thing to see the rocks again. But when we think about that, how sad and I don't want to go down a rabbit trail here, but how sad when you do think about these kind of things that creation responds rightly to the Lord. Physical creation, things like plants and trees and grass and rocks long for their creator, groan for for the return of the Lord, and and, and even obey the Lord when he tells the wind and the waves to be quiet and, and are longing to praise the Lord, but the Lord's restraining somehow rocks from singing his praises, and yet, sadly, sometimes human beings' hearts can be so hard that we don't want to praise the Lord or that we won't praise the Lord, even though rocks are longing to and he won't let them, or that we're not even interested in the things of the Lord or the coming of the Lord. We're more interested in this and that and physical things, and creation itself is saying, we can't wait till Jesus returns, and how enthused creation itself is. So again, is this a reference to that? Or perhaps at the end of verse 2 where he says, they shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Is he referring to those who will be on the earth during the experience of the kingdom age that seeing the beauty and the glory and the excellence restored back to creation and how amazing it's going to look, all the beauty and the intelligence and the skill and the design of God's creative order. Like I said, we're seeing the broken version now Imagine how incredible it's going to look then, the excellent creative acts of God. Is he referring to there those who are dwelling on the earth, even you and I a part of it, that as we look upon God's restorative act on creation and its beauty and glory, that in that we'll see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of God by just seeing his creative acts. Again, remember the Bible tells us in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The earth shows forth his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, night unto night. So again, the Bible in Psalm 19, as well as Romans chapter 1, tells us the same thing, that the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen by the things that are made. That physical creation, God says, has a way of speaking to humanity about God's existence. That when we look upon creation, we shouldn't worship creation, we should worship the creator, But creation is intended to indicate a message to humanity that God is a God of order. He's a God of beauty. He's a God of design. He's a God of intricacy, that he does things in an excellent way. As we look at creation and nature and the creatures, the animals, the things that God's created, I mean, of all things, the human body, those things testify of the incredible glory and the majesty of the Lord and really the excellency of our God, that how excellent is our God that he could make those things. And in some ways, maybe it's a reference to how when we see these things, it's going to increase our own understanding as we're looking upon these things to a much greater extent. Now, verse 3 and 4, it seems here that what Isaiah begins to do now is recognizing the people are in the midst of all the, the heavy things, and these are coming things, the kingdom age. It's almost as if perhaps here in verses 3 and 4, he's trying to give a word of encouragement to those who are struggling in different ways, under the pain of sin, under the problems of sin, the the sufferings, things still under the curse. That can be very wearying, and again, It seems here he's giving an encouragement. He says, verse 3, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, 
Say to those who are faint or excuse me, fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense, the just repayment, the ideas to those who've done wrong, the recompense of God, he will come and save you. So as the Jews themselves enduring great suffering, as humanity generally enduring all types of suffering and it's hard on this earth and we struggle as we journey on this planet now because things are cursed. And so everything is hard. Everything is a struggle. There's sickness and disease and suffering and sorrow and pain and death and loss and, and we're working through all these things. Here it's almost as if the prophet is, is giving an exhortation to encourage those who are struggling in different ways to be inspired with hope as they're under the pain and they're under the problems of sin. He describes in verse 3 here the value. He says, strengthen the weak hands. Now, weak hands speak of those who are weary and who we might say are losing their grip. Right? If your hands are going weak... You're struggling to keep a grip on things. You're losing your grip or, or maybe weak hands struggling in the sense to keep on working. And, and sometimes that is our experience as human beings. In our weariness on this earth sometimes, our hands become weak. Sometimes we feel like we're losing our grip. And we start to find ourselves wrestling or maybe we're interacting with someone who says, man, that person seems like they're, they're really starting to lose their grip. Seem like they were hanging on, but they, they really seem like that they're starting to lose their grip on things now. And, and it's just becoming a little bit too much for them. Or maybe someone who at one time had their hands to the plow and they were, they were working, but then their hands become weary. They grow weary in well-doing, and now all of a sudden they're struggling to keep working, and their hands are getting weak in the process. And here the prophet says, if you see that, he says, strengthen the weak hands. Strengthen the weak hands. You know, this makes me think of what happened with David and Jonathan. It tells us uh, of Jonathan that he came along and that he strengthened David's hand in God. And, and, and I like that picture there. And what I simply picture there when I read that of Jonathan's companionship and friendship with David, and that's what he was to David. David was a great man, and Jonathan was just a really great friend a comrade and a companion, and he strengthened David's hand in God. And there are plenty of things that would cause David from time to time to get worn out and wearied, and it was at times David was losing his grip. He would get discouraged. And when I picture David having his hand strengthened in God by Jonathan, I just picture Jonathan somehow through what he said or did or whatever, just kind of taking David's hand and just putting his hand back into God's hand again and saying, David, here, just, just, just take hold of his hand again. He'll get you through this. Don't, don't lose grip on him. You may be losing your grip on everything else, but just, just take firm hold of God's hand because it's, it's God's hand who holds ours, right? He's the one that's holding our hand. So here he says, you see someone with weak hands, he says, strengthen those weak hands. Do what you can to do that. Be someone by the Spirit of the Lord who strengthens weak hands. And he says also, verse 3, and make firm, again, same idea, strengthen, restore the strength to the feeble knees. Now, feeble knees people, speak of people who are struggling, if you would, to keep standing. If your knees are feeble, then, then you're struggling to, to stand or to keep on standing, or you're also having trouble walking and taking steps. And sometimes that can be a challenge as well, where people are struggling to keep standing, and maybe they've been really standing strong. But maybe they're under the weight of something, and maybe they've been taking their stand and standing strong, but they've really been under the, the heavy weight of something, and, and they're starting to weaken. Their knees are starting to buckle, if you would, and, and they're starting to, to, to struggle with maintaining their stand. Maybe their stand for Christ, or their stand against sin, or their stand against spiritual warfare, or their stand even just in their Christian life, trying to take their stand when everyone else around them doesn't want to stand for Christ. Or maybe it's just beginning to struggle in weakness with having trouble walking. Maybe somebody at one time was really walking closely with the Lord, but now they're, they're struggling with walking with the Lord. And, and their, their legs, in a sense, or their spiritual legs are, are starting to get weary and they're starting to take some steps backward. Or, or maybe they're just not taking steps forward in progression 
that they should be taking or they once were taken. And, and the prophet here says, listen, do you see someone wrestling with that? Strengthen them. Do what you can to firm them up. Get behind them to support them, to do what it takes to assist them, to empower them in some way. And then verse 4, he says, and say to those also who are faint-hearted, and the idea of being faint-hearted speaks of those, again, who are just dealing with anxiety, with worry, uh, those who are, I keep saying faint-hearted, excuse me, fearful-hearted. And again, this is a very common struggle as well, just being consumed and controlled by fear. Being fearful-hearted is a common human tendency from time to time, and there is a whole plethora of different things that cause us from time to time to find ourselves struggling with worry or anxiety or to be afraid of something that seems like it's arisen or maybe of the unknown or what could arise or maybe some situation that's now unfolded and all of a sudden, as human beings, we find ourselves being very fearful-hearted. And our heart is gripped with fear and worry and anxiety. And before you know it, boy, fear can start to, to consume your heart. And it can just begin to control your thoughts and your emotions and be really very paralyzing and overwhelming. And he says, look, say to the one who is fearful-hearted, be strong and do not fear. In other words, the word of the Lord to the fearful-hearted is you persevere, be strong. Don't shrink back, don't buckle, don't lose hope, don't lose heart. He says, you persevere, be strong, carry on, continue to take your stand, keep walking forward. And he says, not only be strong, but do not fear. In other words, we might say, have courage. And so the idea here is to give an encouragement. You persevere and you be encouraged. You keep going. Be strong. Don't be fearful. You be encouraged. Well, you might say, well, that doesn't help very much. Well, that's why he says, here's why. Because behold, your God will come. Here's why you can be strong when you're fearful hearted. Here's why somebody can be encouraged and strengthened. Because we can tell them, listen, you be strong. Don't be afraid. Don't be fearful. Because your God's going to come. God's going to come through, the idea is. This is what God was going to do for the Jews. When their conditions, we're going to see in the chapters ahead of us next time, uh, their situation had them very fearful hearted. They were surrounded by the Assyrian army. It looked like it was impossible that they were not going to be completely destroyed. It looked like curtains. Everything circumstantial was screaming, be terrified. The worst case scenario is coming, and God here says to them, listen, your God will come. He's going to come. He's going to show up. He's done it before. He hasn't changed. He'll do it again. He says, your God will come. And look, if it's not against us, this is how we want him to come when our enemy's threatening us with vengeance. I don't want him coming against me with vengeance. I don't mind if he comes against my enemies with vengeance. <laughs> But as long as he's not coming with vengeance against us, so this was the case, your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God. In other words, God says, I see what your enemy is doing. I see what they're, what they're, they're threatening you with. But he says, I'm going to come, and he will come, verse 4, and save you. In other words, God's assurance through the prophet was God is coming to assist, and he'll deliver you from the battle he will remove your enemy that is threatening you and intimidating you, and he will do what it takes to rescue you, to save you, to deliver you. So God says here, are you fearful hearted? Maybe you're fearful hearted this evening. The prophet says, you don't be afraid. Be strong. Your God's going to come. Watch. In the right hour, in the right moment, he will come and he will save you in this situation, even he has in others. Now, he goes on to say, verse 5, and then the eyes of the blind, now again, we're talking about the time of the glorious coming kingdom age, other things that will happen, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. So notice, 
powerful description here. The coming reign of Jesus will bring great power to heal brokenness among humanity. Not only will God bring glorious restoration and healing to physical nature and creation and plants and trees and and physical creation, but God is also going to bring incredible power and healing to the brokenness of the most cherished part of his creative act, and that is his creatures, you and I, who are made in the image of God. If he's going to do such things for the physical creation, the plants, the grass, the mountains, the streams, the rivers, how much more is God going to do miraculous, wonderful healing of human brokenness? You and I who are made in the image of God. Again, Jesus talked about this again and again when he would talk about not worrying. He said, look, if God so cares for the grass of the field and the birds of the air, he doesn't take, not take notice of if one little sparrow falls to the ground. How, how much more value, Jesus would say, are you than, than these physical things of creation? And so again, even as Jesus comes back in that day, when the coming kingdom comes, notice the reign of Jesus will bring great power to heal brokenness within people in many different ways. And again, let us remind ourselves, one of the reasons we see so much suffering and sickness and disease and handicaps and problems in the lives of human beings is because our bodies are broken from the curse of sin. And so because of that, whether it's a problem or a defect that arises genetically from birth or whether it's something that happens at some point later on as the body deteriorates over a lifespan, or whether it is through the injury of suffering that comes to pass, these are all marks of the brokenness that happens to humanity as the result of being under the curse of sin. But the wonderful thing is Jesus is coming and he's going to liberate all that. And he's going to heal all that. And how amazing is it going to be when Jesus comes, just like when he did the first time, when Jesus came the first time in a small measure for a short ministry of three and a half years in a small area of the globe, pretty much in the Middle East, Jesus did some of these same things to validate that he was the king of the coming kingdom of God. And so in Jesus' days, we saw him open the eyes of the blind. We see that in the Gospels. We see Jesus opening the eyes of the blind. We see Jesus restoring hearing back to the deaf and opening their ears. Lame people like John chapter 5, the man at the pool of Bethesda, leaping up like a deer as Jesus again, after 38 years, healed this physical handicap in this man, and he was able to move again. The tongue of the the tongue of the dumb, that is those who were unable, a speech impediment, mutes were able to speak and open their mouths. Jesus touched that one man and said, you know, be opened, you know, Ephrata, and, and his mouth was able to speak after never being able to use his tongue to communicate before. And look, the wonderful thing is what Jesus did was just a sampling. When he comes back and reigns for a thousand years, one of the things he's going to do is bringing tremendous healing of all the brokenness and pain and suffering in human bodies. And how amazing is that going to be to get a chance to, in a sense, witness that, to realize that's going on, to see Jesus doing that, and, and how wonderful to realize that, that in some ways that's absolutely a wonderful mark of the coming kingdom age when Christ is reigning because, see, what we often forget about a lot of times as human beings is the real purpose of our eyes are to see the Lord. It's to see the Lord. It's not to use our eyes to see all the things that we spend time looking at now, even the marvels of creation. The highest and most important purpose and reason that God gave us eyes and that they would be opened and that our eyes would not be blinded or hindered and we would have clear sight is to see the Lord. That's the highest ideal for our eyes. The whole reason why we have the ability to hear and are not deaf is to be able to hear the voice of the Lord, to be able to hear things from the Lord. That's the highest purpose for our ears, to be able to hear from the Lord. The whole reason why we have the ability to move around, to walk about, to have bodies that function and and to walk and to do things is to be able to use our physical frame to do things like walk with the Lord. 
and to use our bodies to serve the Lord and the strength and the power we have to do things, to do things on behalf of the service and the kingdom of the Lord. And again, the whole reason God's given us a, a tongue and the ability to speak and the ability to sing is not to win American Idol or America's Got Talent. It's to be able to praise the Lord. The highest use of our tongue, the highest use of our speech is to praise the Lord, to worship the Lord, to sing to the Lord. And in that day, the Lord is going to make sure everyone has that capacity, this tremendous healing of the brokenness of humanity as he's making all things right and the king of kings is among them in his glorious kingdom. He goes on to describe as well in verse 6 and 7, for the waters also shall birth forth in the burst forth in the wilderness, the streams in the desert. You may notice that phrase there, verse 6, the end of it, streams in the desert. One of the most popular devotionals uh, in church history was written from that very phrase there, streams in the desert. If you like that devotional, that's, that's where it came from. If you're ever wondering where the phrase came from, streams in the desert. The parched ground, verse 7, shall become a pool, and a thirsty land springs of water, and the habitation of jackals where each lay, the idea is in a devastated, deserted wasteland, there shall now be grass with reeds and rushes. And so again, what he's describing there is picturing a powerful work of restoration, the bringing forth of waters for the purpose of renewal and refreshment. He describes again territories in creation that are wilderness, that are like dry desert lands, parched ground. He says these areas shall burst forth. With springs and pools of water, there will be this flooding forth in a restorative act where the waters will come to bring renewal and refreshment, to satisfy severe thirst, to cause the production of life and fruitfulness where now grass and reeds and rushes begin to spring forth because of the water of life coming and bringing fruitfulness. Again, as we look at what's being described, what a beautiful image, even to a greater degree, of the renewal and the renewing work of the power of the Holy Spirit, even described here of kind of the renewing work of the living waters, we might say, of the Spirit of the Lord in what takes place in the dry, parched condition of a human soul. You know, and many times the Bible uses this language of the living waters of the Spirit of God that quenches the thirst of a human soul or the parched, dry condition of our human soul. You know, you may be here this evening. In some ways, maybe you feel like that you've been in a wilderness spiritually. Sometimes we say stuff like that. Man, I feel like my Christian life's been so dry, or I feel like my soul is just so parched. And man, I just, I just, I don't know what it is. I'm just thirsty, and, and I feel like that my spiritual life is dry. Well, look, Jesus said in John chapter 7, referring to the ministry of the Spirit, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And Jesus said that, that that living water that he would give was a reference to the ministry of the Spirit of God. You know, we're also told as well, similar things in Revelation chapter 21 and in chapter 22, we have similar references to those kind of things. One of the last things we get at the end of the Word of God, Revelation Chapter 22, for example, verse 17, it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, let him who hears come. And then it says this, Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Again, isn't it wonderful that it's water of life that's offered freely? The only thing that's required is acknowledging your thirst and recognizing that you don't have a self-sustaining spring within yourself, that you can't restore back, you can't renew back. Listen, what we need is a work of the Spirit of the Lord. We saw just a few chapters ago, the end of chapter 32 in verse 15, where the prophet said, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, 
then the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is counted as a forest. Again, there's that direct connection of the power of the Spirit of the Lord, the living water of the Spirit of God that comes from the Lord himself, who is the Spirit, as the Spirit of the Lord is given to us as we come to him, that brings a, a renewal, a refreshment, it quenches our thirst, it satisfies us, and it is able to bring from a dry, barren condition fresh life, new fruitfulness. It's able to bring renewal and revival. And again, let me encourage you, when you look at the New Testament, when we talk about this thing of the experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is the baptizer. Acts chapter 1 tells us that, that Jesus himself is the one who gives that baptism of the power and the endowment of the Spirit upon our lives. So look, in the same way you went to Jesus for salvation, and he gave you the Spirit of the Lord to dwell inside of you and seal you, you can go to Jesus again and say, Lord, I need a fresh outpouring of your Spirit upon my life. You gave me the Spirit in salvation. Lord, you're the one who gives the Spirit. So, Lord, would you, would you pour out your Spirit upon me? Would you baptize me afresh with your Spirit? And the wonderful thing is when we do that, oftentimes he's able to take our parched, desert-like soul and, and renew back life and fruitfulness once again. Verses 8 through 10, Isaiah then describes another beautiful thing in that coming day of the kingdom. He says, and a highway shall be there, and a road, and there won't be any road work, there won't be any radar guns, there won't be any traffic jams, this is a different kind of highway. A highway shall be there, it shall be called the highway of holiness, and the unclean shall not pass over it. But it shall be for others, that is, those other than the unclean. The idea there is the morally unclean, the spiritually unclean. They won't be permitted on this highway of holiness. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nothing to threaten or to harm anymore. Nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. Now, that's you and I, the redeemed, the redeemed of the Lord. Those of us who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, who've been purchased back, he's going to say in the next verse, the ransomed of the Lord, those of us who realize what it takes to be able to have access to this highway of holiness. Look, the wonderful thing is on this highway of holiness, there are no tolls to pay. In fact, you can't pay the toll. The only way to get onto the highway of holiness is to realize that the toll has already been paid by Jesus, that Jesus paid the price, and by accepting the payment of Jesus' price, the redemption of his blood shed on our behalf to free us from our enslaved, unclean, immoral, sinful condition by our soul being redeemed back by Jesus. He purchases us out of our slavery spiritually and buys us back to himself, and it's the redeemed of the Lord who are allowed to walk on this highway of holiness. I believe perhaps this highway of holiness may be the passageway whereby we take this particular highway of holiness. This, and interesting, the Hebrew literally describes it like the English word says, a high way. It's a compound word. The idea is actually a, a elevated or a higher way to approach holiness. And again, as Jesus' throne is there in Jerusalem, perhaps there is literally going to be a direct passageway to get to Jesus as we go to Jesus and we celebrate some of the feasts of the Lord, the Bible describes that will be happening, going up to Jerusalem, men and women of all nations going to worship the Lord, to celebrate the king there upon his throne, that this may be a literal highway that exists there, not just a spiritual one, but this highway of holiness and how wonderful, again, that as we're traveling on this highway of holiness, this way that the Lord has created to experience total holiness, a wholesomeness, the purity of the Lord, and all that he intends, the glory of his presence, that there's nothing filthy on it. And how awesome is that? Because right now, we're kind of on the journey and the pathways and the roadways and the highways of this earth and I don't know if you've ever noticed, there's all kinds of defiled things around us. 
and you're passing by, you know, if you've ever driven down maybe a a road before where you go through maybe a particular area, maybe an inner city location or something, and you see, you know, graffiti and messed up buildings and just trash and garbage. And, you know, I've seen this in some of the third world countries I've been in doing some missions work, and you're thinking, oh, man, imagine none of that will be existing anymore. And not just in a physical sense, because creation will be beautiful, but in the sense that no unclean person no defiled individual, no person who's immoral or sinful will be permitted to journey. It says the unclean shall not pass on that highway. So no more will we have to deal with in the journey this perverse person over here doing these perverse things or this filthy person over here saying these rotten, disgusting, filthy things or this lying individual or this cruel person. None of that will exist. All it will be is brothers and sisters in Christ and the redeemed people of the Lord who love Jesus, who walk on that highway, going to seek the Lord, to worship the Lord. He even tells us that God's put even built-in guardrails in verse 80 says there, whoever walks this road, although a fool, which that, that fits for me, shall not go astray. So you can't even get off track. All you got to do is just stay on the highway. God says, look, even the most foolish person as long as they know the way. And who's the way? Jesus. Even the most foolish person doesn't have to worry, man, well, I'll, I'll probably get on the highway and then I'll get lost and I'll get off the wrong exit. No, God says, even the fool won't go astray. As they just know the way, the way is the Jesus. He says, the fool won't even go astray. God's got built-in guardrails. He says, verse 10, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and notice, this is why I think it's going to be a, a real legitimate highway and come to Zion. That's Jerusalem. And that's where Christ will be reigning. Coming to Zion with singing. The idea is bringing worship, going to attend the worship gatherings where Jesus is reigning upon his throne. will come to Zion singing with everlasting joy on their heads. The idea is great enthusiasm, celebration, joyfully coming, hey, get, let's go on that highway to holiness, man. Let's go and enjoy the Lord and sing to him. And notice, look at the byproduct of being on that highway of holiness and going there to go sing to Jesus. He says, they shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. What a great byproduct of being on the highway of holiness and going up to sing enthusiastically to Jesus Again, if we think about a highway, a highway is basically a road to get from one location to a different preferred destination, right? And the Bible says here that as we take this highway of holiness, as we get on it and as we stay on it, we go to sing and to worship the Lord, that the destination on the other side of that is being able, as we sing to the Lord, to obtain joy and gladness. That's the opposite of depression and discouragement, and despair, and sadness, because all that's being removed. Look, and he says, and sorrow, and sighing. Sighing is just another way of just kind of that, and just being so tired of it all. He says, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Because again, God's going to wipe every tear for eyes, no more pain, nor sorrow, nor suffering, death, disease, sickness, all gone, all removed. And this will be our experience. Man, what a wonderful thing to realize that that is going to be our experience one day in the kingdom age with Christ when we realize that as we're journeying on this earth and it's hard, look, the wonderful thing is in one sense spiritually, I believe certainly this is a literal description, but there's the glorious benefit of right now of being able, if you would, spiritually to get on the highway of holiness, even now. We are on that highway of holiness now, and in some ways, in partial ways, this is some of what our experience is already right now. So look, as we finish one year and you head into another year, don't make it complicated. Just stay on the highway of holiness. And whatever you can do to get as many other people onto the highway of holiness with you, that's the best way to journey through another year. Let's stand together. Let's pray.